Before we get into today's episode, we'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. This episode was recorded on Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung land. Welcome to Interior Couture. We're here to bring the same excitement over interior design that friends share when discussing the latest in fashion. So grab a glass and join us for another episode of Interior Couture, where design comes home. Welcome to our new look, new feel interior couture podcast. I am so excited to be here. It's such a fun day. How good. I'm Claire Foote from Amilla Studio. And I am Ashley Turner from Tove Interiors. Hi. Hello, how are you? <laughs> good. It's good to be back, isn't it? How great is it? It's so good. Yeah, so we're back with our new look and feel interior couture podcast. And to kick things off this week, we're going to start with a little weekly recommendation. So yes. what have you got for us, Ash? I'm going to recommend a lighting store for anyone who is looking to elevate their interiors or is on a renovation journey and you're looking for lights that have a little bit more of an oomph to them yeah I think you should look up lights 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 they do really unique pieces they hold a really small range but everything that they do packs a really nice punch so that is my recommendation great what about yours I'm gonna recommend life interiors love them they very graciously loaned us a beautiful couch for our shoot for Mm. our rebrand of interior couture Mm. and we went there and picked it up everything was so hassle-free and their showroom I mean we were just drooling over it we We really were we could have spent a lot of time Mm. there so if you have the opportunity to go there it's in Abbotsford is that the only one they have in Melbourne I think so yeah it is very beautiful and online I mean just as beautiful but there's something so nice about going into a store and getting to touch and feel everything yeah 100% and they had laid it out in a way that didn't feel overly overly overwhelming like sometimes you go into furniture stores and you're like oh yeah there's a lot going on here and there was a lot of stock on their floor but it was so beautiful to walk through and you could really visualize yourself in the little living rooms they had made it was a good time well worth a look so that's our recommendation for this week amazing for our first segment we want to welcome you to the design pulse so this is where we bring you our top three current stories and events from the design world I'm so excited for this. (laughs) How good. So it means that every week we'll bring you our top three stories, which are our top three stories. They may not actually be the top three stories, but it's what's caught our eye in the last week or so. So this week we're going to kick things off with Inside, Emily in Paris star Kate Walsh's laid back Perth home. That's from Vogue Living. I love Kate Walsh. Everything about her, I think she's elegant and beautiful and classic yeah and being a Perth girl myself finding out that she now lives in Perth blew my mind I thought it was just a holiday home yeah but no she's relocated yeah so for those playing at home Kate Walsh plays Madeline Wheeler in Emily in Paris she's the let's be real She's Addison from Grey's yeah. Anatomy. Yeah, that is and who private she practice. Is. Yes, yeah, that's how we real. all know it. <laughs> but if you're thinking who, yeah. she's the like American boss of Emily who's pregnant. Yes, the one who has and baby. just does the character so well. She does, doesn't she? Oh. Yeah, I do really love her in that bit. 
totally with you. She's Grey's Anatomy through and through. (laughs) (laughs) But enough about her. Let's talk about her home. Yeah. It was – I was really excited to read this article about how she had decided to curate her home and what she had decided to do. In the article, there was a quote from her that says, "Um, I usually like to have things from lots of different places and time periods. However, for this home, I wanted to go for a more minimal look with neutrals and make the landscape the jewel in the crown. Now, if you haven't been to Perth, the landscape of the ocean is incredible so beautiful it's really beautiful and the images of this home truly capture it yeah I don't know about you it's kind of all my eyes were drawn to there yeah. were interiors in the forefront but I was looking to yeah. the background so I guess if that's what you were doing then the designer nailed that section of the yes brief, I think that is so true there really was when you were looking through the images now whether that is also assisted by the photographer and angles but when you did look at the images Nothing about the interiors took away from the landscape behind, Mm. which was obviously such a strong portion of the brief. Yes. And in certain areas of the home, you could see that the designer had used mirrors to create a reflection so you could constantly see the landscape around. And I thought that that was quite, I guess, effective. Yeah, it was cleverly executed. And the designer on this is Elisa Coleman. So I personally haven't heard of her prior. Being a Perth girl, had you heard of her? No, but I when I started looking into who she was, I have heard of some of her projects okay, in the great. past. Yeah. So um, for Perth, which is not an overly design-orientated city, yeah. she definitely has a prominent feature in a lot of what we do. They talk about their design brief to be bringing the outside in and to really ensure that the landscape is the hero which as we said I think they've done well and there are pieces that they've brought into the interiors like that tree root coffee Mm. table Mm -hmm. and there's chunky Mm. raw teak bench seat in the hallway yeah those sorts of things I think worked really well they really did complement the exterior and Mm -hmm. the I'd assume it would get like quite windy and woolly in that location so it really complemented that and I really loved those pieces but there were also pieces in there that rubbed me up the wrong way. Yeah I loved those pieces as individual pieces. Yes they had no there was no cohesiveness yes, to the living room specifically felt like it was lacking in the images it's it is yeah it's hard, it's hard to tell to tell maybe we would have a different experience if we were there or if we'd seen a video but from the images that was definitely my takeaway that mm. they had near tried to insert things that in theory i understand and i think would be awesome very much like they have a sitting room they call it a chill room where um I was about to call it Addison where Kate um mm. it's a creative space for her yeah she does, the black room yeah, yeah yeah so she does uh like workouts there and her fiance that we didn't mention is a Perth-based farmer. Like, yes. how is that? Oh that they met on a cruise in 2020. So, how great. Good on you. Uh, it's like a fairy tale, right, that you meet some on a famous cruise. person yeah. on a cruise. It's so wild. Anyway. And Addison Montgomery of all people. Of all people. So, he uses that space. He plays the drums and guitar and stuff like that. Anyway, I like the idea that they've used this beautiful wallpaper in that room, which is by Perth photographer Jodie 
Darcy. Yeah. The wallpaper, stunning. It's all clouds. It is a cloud wallpaper. It feels all fluffy and airy and just stunning. And in that room, they've included 11 or 12 disco balls. Yeah, from the ceiling. Mm. In theory, if you were to tell me that, I'd be like, cool, how great would the light in that room look? Like having all of the light bounce around that room with those disco balls. Love it. In execution, it just didn't pull it off. It no. was very like polarizing. What I my first thoughts were, oh, they've taken a taste of Zoe Foster Blake's home where they've kind of gone left field. Yeah, a bit playful. A bit playful. But they've reserved it far too much. Yeah, they didn't lean all the way they in. They didn't lean all the way yeah. in. And I'm not sure if it was from a designer's perspective. I was trying to think, okay, if my client came to me and said, I want to introduce X, Y, Z, but the purpose of the room is to be a yoga studio and then a place for me to work and then mm. a place for me to be creative, was that room where it had so many different functions stunting the designer's ability to go all in were they trying to create balance going okay well if we have 40 disco balls in the ceiling that's going to be really difficult for her to meditate Mm. and so all right well we'll just do 12 and we'll put them in a cluster over here so that you can meditate over there it felt like the multi-purpose facet of the room really hindered the ability to lean in to what maybe they were trying to achieve yeah that's interesting yeah but i don't know yeah well who knows (laughs) and Again, in theory, you just saying a cluster of these disco balls with the clouds on the wallpaper. Again, in theory, it sounds like mm. this would be beautiful. It didn't hit the mark. <laughs> and I, I do wonder, like I don't want to make any assumptions, but I do wonder if a lot of it is just how it comes out in photography. So we can yeah. only really base it off of what we've seen. Yeah. What I'll end with, this is a really good example of biophilic design at its finest. So they really did try and bring the outdoors indoors mm. and I think that they have done that well. Yeah, You're that constantly element. looking out, that element. Definitely. There's just a few polarising pieces that detract from it mm. maybe. But take a look for yourself and let us know what you think. Yeah, take a look. It's on Vogue Living. We will link it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Next up, Margot Robbie takes you inside the Barbie dream house. That is from Architectural Digest. Oh, my goodness. I literally got chills. <laughs> I'm like... We had so much fun with this one. Yes, I yeah. am squealing at the idea of talking about this one. This one is not actually current. We know that this article and the hype of the Barbie movie and going behind the design of the set is actually from a few months ago, but we couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk about it. 100%, especially when they did such a good job in executing it. The most common theme I've heard when people have come away from the Barbie movie had said that set is exactly what they had imagined. A dream house looking like or Barbie land looking like. I have not heard one negative thing about how they've executed it. Mm. Um, It was Sarah Greenwood. She was the person commissioned to be the set designer of this movie. And I have to say in looking through the information, I've stumbled across an article that revealed she didn't own a Barbie or a dream house growing up. Isn't that wild isn't that honestly because well I'm making an assumption that she's of our era I suppose the Barbie was first invented in 1959 Mm. so she would have been highly exposed to it growing up how has she missed that 
I, <laughs> yeah, and it didn't really elaborate far beyond that. It kind of just popped that in as a, a shock piece. Mm. And one of the quotes that was popped in this article from her, she had said it was one of the most difficult philosophical, intellectual pieces of work she has ever done. And I wonder if, because she never really experienced what it would be like to play with a dream house and to have those um, childlike, I guess, play with the toys. Yeah. But then her unbiased opinion is probably what made it so incredible in the end. The execution is just beyond it's this set of just marshmallow pink plastic right they've just done such an outstanding job of it and this behind the scenes view which margot robbie takes you on is so insightful and very worth Mm. a look Mm. into it and you can see lots of different characters who star in the movie their take on it and how just purely blown away they are by the set and the fact that the proportions of the set have been done so well because there are things like of course when you're playing with barbie barbie's house the ceilings are so low Mm -hmm. like in some instances she probably doesn't even fit in there although those proportions are tiny things like the toothbrushes and the cups and Mm -hmm. the saucers they're all huge Mm -hmm. and they've executed that so well in the set which until reading the article not something that i picked up on while watching it but having them explain it to me mm. makes me understand the depth that they went yeah. to and the fact that I'm like, that is so true yeah. that they've just taken every little piece of information and really run with it and made yep. this imaginary land, if anything, better than the imaginary land that we dreamt up when we were young. Definitely. And even understanding when you have a toy dream house, they don't generally have walls because the kids' yes. hands need to be able to fit in all different angles yes. and play with their Barbie. And they were saying we didn't want to take away from that but by removing all of those walls it actually made the set behind the barbie house really difficult to execute yes because you could only have certain things viewed from certain angles and so it added another layer of okay well how are we going to approach this that they obviously nailed so well because i didn't sit there in the movie thinking hang on that angle was slightly off or this doesn't really make sense they had done such an incredible job I really do think props to them yeah it's just wonderful and you see throughout the interior decor knowing that Barbie was invented in 1959 they've really taken those late 50s early 60s vibes through the decor and you can see that like there's a lot of modernist furniture throughout of course all in bright pink Mm -hmm. and purple hues which potentially is not really the colors that we would have seen at the time but the furniture design Mm -hmm. is very much of the era as are the pink flamingos everywhere yes I loved seeing the pink flamingos and the flamingo of the um the letterbox in particular, they've just nailed it so well with these great references, these great nods to where Barbie has come from. Yeah, definitely. One thing that I doesn't really have anything to do with the set design, but I really wanted to add from an article I read in Architectural Digest, it says, it's definitely a house for a single woman, which is quite unique because in 1962, it was rare for a woman to own her own home. And again, Barbie is the ultimate feminist icon. And I never thought about when, because when dream houses came out for, you know, when we were younger, it wasn't unusual for a woman to own her own home if she wanted to and blah. 
Imagine being that first generation mum by her kid, Barbie's home, and then it's it's such a it would be such a unique experience for them being like this isn't really common yeah for this woman to own her own home but here I am for my kid showing her like this is possible yeah this this could be you you could be Barbie in your own home yeah I mean we all want to live in Barbie land let's be real absolutely I do and I mean they've got that Miami Barbie dream house that you can actually stay in. How incredible. What an incredible touch that they added to the whole rollout of the Barbie marketing to release the movie that you can actually stay in this Barbie dreamland, which is not a replica of the set or anything like that, but a Miami dream house in it of its own. Where is that? It's in Miami. I'm pretty sure I'm going to Miami next year. Well, there you go. Well, gonna well, have well. To, that's to where you're going to have to stay. <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't think it's cheap. It's something like $25,000 a night, but sure, oh. go for it. I mean, technically Ben's going for work, so they cover the accommodation well, expenses. So, you know, you go. just a casual. That could work. <laughs> I don't think that we could finish on touching on the whole Barbie dream house experience without pointing out the fact that, as reported by CNN, they used so much pink paint for the set that it set out a global shortage of pink I couldn't fathom it and all I could think was oh my goodness those poor painters the set would have smelt so strong I never really thought about the paint yeah aspect of it and the reflection Mm. I was reading articles how Margot Robbie's hair to get it well the wigs that she used to have it that pristine colour. They actually had to change the colour of the wig for every outfit she wore because the pink of the set was throwing off the blonde wow. against her outfits. So the hair and makeup artists were there the night prior re-dyeing the wigs to ensure that it didn't throw out, that blonde yeah. ended up looking pinker than it actually was. Wow, that's so interesting and it is a really important detail because if the pink wasn't done correct, people would have blown up about it. Totally. There you go. There you go. So interesting. So do yourselves a favour, watch this Architectural Digest little interview with Margot Mm. Robbie. It is so incredible. And everything that follows from that, because I don't know about you, but I got in a deep, dark hole of Barbie. (laughs) Deep, dark hole. Maybe it was a deep pink hole. I'm not sure. (laughs) So the last item we're going to talk about is a event I guess that's happening mm. in Melbourne called Never Permanent. Now Never Permanent is a I guess forum for um, lots of different artists and creatives to come and give their perspective on their work and the blend of technology. Mm. So I'll give you a bit of a I guess toucher on what they explain it as. Yeah. Uh, Technology is evolving at a pace never seen before, but its most successful applicants remain powered by human innovation. Never Permanent is a -a one-of-a-kind talks program that celebrates and explores the rich intersection of creativity and technology now. Basically a forum where all different creatives around Australia and the world Mm. are coming together and talking about their opinion on technology and how it can inform how we think creatively. It's so incredible to think that this has been put together in collaboration with the City of Melbourne. It's going to be held at the Royal Exhibition Building. I love that. 
And what a great setting that it's at the Royal Exhibition Building. We really get to show that off to everyone who's coming from around the world. But it's interesting that it gives this nod to history mm-hmm. while we're talking about technology and technology, uh, which seems so far removed from the Royal Exhibition Building. Yeah. I, yeah, I really love the concept. So it's held on the 24th of August, which is actually the day that this episode goes live. So you and I unfortunately can't be there, but we'll be really interested to hear if any of the listeners go mm. anyone has insights from the event because it is going to be a huge day so in researching it I definitely found my favorite artist yes and I'm curious to know because looking at it I thought oh, I bet this is going to be Claire's yeah because out of all the research I went through you know clicking on all the artists who was coming to understand their work I had so much fun doing it I don't know about you because there's so many people that I've just never heard of before but one person I hadn't heard of him before but I do know his work which is Jesse Wollstone yeah that was mine as well (laughs) I thought so just incredible and I'm sure that the listeners would actually know his work to Mm. see it yeah so he uses a multimedia approach of visual and auditory arts and it's supported by science and the aesthetics of nature all I can think when I view his work is how incredible would this be to do yoga in front of yes it's super calming. He uses really beautiful audio and visual mm. to kind of create this at times can feel overwhelming and then at other times can feel quite peaceful view that you can sit and watch for hours. Yeah, it's quite beautiful because he's almost simulating. To me, it always looks like waves crashing up yes. on rocks that's kind of what it looks like it's in a burst of color he uses ai to produce it and there's been installations throughout new york there was even i couldn't find it but i've seen a retail a retail shop front of a high-end like a gucci or something like that he did an installation for them that's cool It may not have been him, but this look Mm. was in that installation. Mm. So I feel like lots of people would have seen this work before, Mm. but maybe not knowing that it was attributed to him. And he's a New Zealand designer. It'd be great to definitely go see his talk. So if you've got time, I would would definitely get down there. Yeah, get onto it. And then report back to us, please. And thank you. (laughs) Well, that rounds out our first segment. And next up, we've got for you past, present, future. So this segment, we take a deep dive. It could not possibly be a podcast with Ash and Claire without us going into a deep dive Mm -hmm. at some point. We go into a specific style that we love and understand how it's been informed. So we go to its past, understand where it's come from, how it's represented today, and then where we believe it's going in the future. Because let's be honest, it really is just prediction when we're talking about the future. So today we are talking all about Japandi. Oh, (laughs) I just, if you guys could be in the room with Claire and I right now, this whole episode, we've just both been like giggling and squiggling. We're like giggling schoolgirls. It's actually kind of ridiculous. We need to take a chill pill. But this is a topic that you and I have talked about really since the podcast came about. We've always wanted to really understand Japandi a little bit more. I'm going to give our listeners a very brief description of what this style is. If you've not heard of it before, Japandi is a sleek hybrid trend that merges the homey cozy feeling of Scandinavian design with timeless silhouettes of Japanese aesthetics. 
which I think is a really good summary of what they're trying to achieve through this. Yeah, I totally agree. It's really that mashup of Japanese design and Scandinavian design, which we love as a society. I feel like I can say with confidence, a blanket we love. Yeah, a blanket (laughs) statement. I'm speaking for everyone. (laughs) If you want to get a quick visual, pause the episode and go look at the Arca Pelago House in Sweden by Norm Architects. Great. One of the first homes really dedicated to Japandi style, Nail obviously nailed it really um, beautifully. Mm-hmm. It will give you a very strong understanding of what it will look like and then come back and listen to the rest. Yeah, we'll link it in the show notes. Yes. So that's what Japandi is. Let's go to the past and give a little mm-hmm. history lesson. Do you want to start with Japanese design or Scandinavian design? Ooh. Or are uh, you doing a mashup of both? I did a mashup of both. Right. Okay. Whoa. So we haven't compared notes. We don't know how this is going. I I'm just, excited. Yeah. I just split them out. There you go. Well, and I think we're going to have a really good um, cross pollination. Yeah. Shall we say? I went to understanding when Japandi really came about, which. Right. Which I would have told you if you had asked me last week, I would have said, hmm. Surely only in the past 20, 30 years. Yep. 150 years ago, it came about when Danish creatives started traveling to Japan, when travel first started really becoming a thing. Mm. And that made so much sense to me because obviously travel was not all that accessible that many years ago. And Mm. if you were traveling, you were of quite an elite path. So why would there ever be a cross-pollination of design styles and so these Danish creatives had gone and viewed how they were doing it in Japan and took nods of that back home and that's really when Japandi started. Yeah it's pretty incredible yeah which is actually in alignment with when Scandinavian style design started as well. So well in the research that I found Scandinavian design really started at the beginning of the 20th century and we see it very prevalent in furniture design. Yes. Which I think that when we consider Scandinavian design I know for me personally I think of furniture first. Yes. You think it's very practical, it's quite soft, it's well made, well put together, it's really serving a purpose Mm. and often multiple purposes, which I'd like to consider the Japanese style had something to do with that, Yeah, multi-use for furniture. So that's kind of where you end up thinking and that Scandinavian style really started at the beginning of the 20th century and it kind of took off in the 1950s because there was a, that was really where Scandinavian design that term was coined because there was a design show that travelled to the US and Canada. There was a section called Scandinavian Way of Living. It was an, a part of the exhibition and works by Nordic designers were showcased mm. there in the 1950s. So that was 1954 to 1957. So it seems that popul- popularity really mm. grew mm. after that exhibition because it was taken, you know, worldwide, I yeah, guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, there was a interview done with Nina Tolstrop by Studio Mama and she was saying these two styles were always meant to blend together because there's an appreciation of things that are made by hand, made with care and made to last, that Japanese culture and Scandinavian culture, like those two really appreciate. And so they were always meant to blend. Yeah. It was just a matter of time. A matter of travel, really. A matter of travel, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And it makes sense that it started 
this Scandinavian design has really started in furniture because we're talking about a period where it's at the height of the industrial revolution mm. that everyone's trying to create in more streamlined ways and to make more that it does seem obvious now in theory yeah. that we look back that we're like oh of course all these things happened while there mm. was this industrial revolution everyone's trying mm. to simplify things and the Scandinavian style really came at a time when in history we've just gone from realism we've switched gears from realism mm. which is really taking everything literally real real life if you think of realism um, in paintings they're literally painting mm. like bowls of fruit and flowers and stuff like that not using the imagination you're just recreating what is mm. really there and then there's been this shift into modernism and scandinavian is kind of that take of shift into this new era mm. of modernism but it's got these nods to nature mm. with these curves and things that wasn't a part of that modern mm. yeah. way of life really one of the things that i found so interesting that comes off of the back of that is mm. those kind of nods to nature and organicness yes. of how Japandi really looks and feels. Mm. Something that I found which is now coined an iconic Japandi accessory, I find interesting because this light was created 230 years ago. Mm. But if you looked at it, you would go, this is 100% Japandi. Like the embodiment of it. The yeah. embodiment of it. And it's the washi paper could Kojima Shuten light, which is those kind of rice paper lights that mm. have the wiring through it and yes. those wooden trimmings around it. And yes. nowadays you can get them as table lamps, you can get them as floor lamps, pendants, whatnot. Mm. But they say that that is the one piece, if you're going to do Japani, that you must have in your home. Tied all together. To tie it all together, which is so unique because we're talking about a style that in theory only came about 150 years ago, but at its core requires something created 230 years ago. Yeah. And it's just so interesting that the gap came 100 years later in blending these two styles together, but there was something already blended. The fact that everything is informed by our history, mm -hmm. right? I don't think you can go past the wabi-sabi philosophy when we're talking about Japandi. So wabi-sabi is, I say it's a concept, but in the research that I've done and the books and things that I've read, because I am quite obsessed with wabi-sabi, I absolutely love it, um, that if you were to ask the Japanese people, it's not something that they can really hold down a consistent definition because it's a feeling mm. wabi-sabi is a feeling and it was something that came about in the 16th century so we're talking a bloody long time ago um in the 16th century that a zen monk has he's been attributed to understanding the wabi-sabi way and he's actually the same person who has created the tea ceremony that japanese enjoy today it's the same tea ceremony did you do those when you went to japan uh, Traditional we didn't end up being able to do one. It was on the top of our list, but yeah, it would have been awesome. It would, yeah, but yeah. unfortunately, no. Didn't end up happening. Well, next time. So the same Zen monk that has created that tea ceremony, Sen no Nikyu. I've probably butchered it. But I've butchered every we'll name. We'll go with said. that. <laughs> <laughs> he first described wabi sabi by the practice of he was asked to clean the courtyard 
and he's cleaned the courtyard to absolute perfection. It's a beautiful, pristine, clean courtyard. Then he's gone over to the cherry blossom and he shook the tree so that little cherry blossoms fall, so that it is that embracing of something being perfectly imperfect. Mm. It's a theory that everything is aging us included and we find additional value and character as things age as they patina as they grow older they add more value because of the character and the depth that we gain from them so wabi sabi that is really the what wabi sabi is all about but it is really a feeling that you can feel and embrace that aging of everything around us and having that real appreciation for it and the sheer fact that this japandi style has become so prevalent in mm. more recent years i don't think that it's a coincidence that as a society we've been put through the ringer in recent times and we're kind of grasping on to things with more meaning and i believe something like the japanese design japanese style that is embedded with so much history and so much philosophy and spirituality that we can't necessarily nail down i don't think that it's a coincidence I that agree. we're reaching for this kind of style at this point in time i agree i think that's a really nice role into opening up the present yeah and something that i think sums up exactly what you're saying is a quote from ply room which says japandi is a philosophical revelation it really is i don't i think people are looking at it now and wondering why they like it so much and why they're gravitating towards it and when I look at Japani I would say it's because it cuts through the noise Mm. there is so much going on in this world constantly we have the news at our fingertips we are in a constant state of hurry especially in Melbourne Mm. I would say it has a culture of just busy Mm. hurry running around with your head chopped off Mm. and people look at this Japani style and feel calm and intention and purpose because everything in that space is not out of coincidence it's very well thought through yeah very well put together but yet embracing that imperfection the fact that there's texture there's organic shapes there's nods from nature that enable you to be within a space that's not clinical Mm. and perfect i found an ad for japandi which says yes which says are you maxed out on maximalism go to japandi a marriage between the imperfect uh beauty of japanese and the simplicity of scandinavian and i was like perfection they've nailed they've nailed communication of that it is almost like we've maxed out on maximalism and we are now really trying to find that simplicity that you were talking about and that imperfect perfection yes because we are in a culture right now that is embracing our imperfect side which i'm loving Mm. i think our generation specifically is really understanding well we're not perfect our careers might look different now Mm. we might want a different kind of lifestyle and that's okay completely unattainable to try and live and mold a perfect life so yeah, it makes perfect sense that our interiors don't have to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> Stop it. And I'm really loving that Japandi's kind of finally found its place in a spotlight. Yes. I don't know about you, but I would have to say that prior to late 2019, probably 2020, this is not a style I'd ever heard of, didn't know anything about, that prior 
to that for me personally it's not something Mm. that was on my radar and to be perfectly honest I dug and dug and dug so I was like who is the designer what were the spaces what are the locations that really brought this to the forefront in the say early 2020s Mm. I couldn't find anything no so there was I found two okay um one being the archipelago house Mm mm-hmm and one being Frederick Werner's house in 1917. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so he um, has a home in Tokyo mm-hmm. that he has completely kind of transformed into being the blend between the two. His kitchen is a really great example of it and his living room, which overlooks a lot of the – I'm probably going to get this wrong, but like the bamboo – Yeah forest and fields and those two were really instrumental to the design early on when it first started arising Mm -hmm. however they're two personal residential properties Mm -hmm. so they wouldn't have featured you know it's not something you would necessarily know of at that time until now when um, it is obviously heavily talked about and so mm. now they're featuring in Vogue and they're featuring in Architectural Digest and all yes, of that. they're going – we're looking for them in retrospect really. Yeah, correct. But I just found it surprising that I found so many articles about it like the uprise of Japandi and all of this and which I think is wonderful that we're putting a spotlight on it but I'm there going – who put the spotlight? Yeah. Why was it at this point in time? Was right. it literally that we were in – lockdown and we were searching for something Mm. more with our interiors is this how it all Mm. came to the forefront but I couldn't find an answer I have a theory but I don't have an answer yeah I have a theory that it started popping up commercially Mm -hmm. in in retail that is so true yeah um one in particular is L Uniform okay they are it's like a luggage and handbag Mm -hmm. company who have a very simple approach to their pieces and so for their interiors they wanted a obviously interiors that coincided with that and so they did a blend of um japandi and french like french style which is quite unique but i have a theory that commercially it started coming out a little bit more although it's not coined as japandi that's not how this is advertised but i think a lot of the asop interiors yes are very true to the japandi style they use a lot of locally sourced australian weathered timbers Mm -hmm. throughout so although the color of the timber may not be the light color that we associate with japandi but the fact that that's the timber that they've chosen that it's weathered that they're happy for it to continue to wear that they use a lot of brass pieces that hold and encapsulate their soaps that only patina as you use the soaps more and more, that is a commercial example that I think lots of people go into Mm -hmm. and you feel something because it is very stripped back and clinical but you feel something Mm -hmm. and that is truly what I believe this Japandi style Mm -hmm. is really embodying is the fact that Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel cold and clinical. So Aesop is really one that comes to mind. I tend to agree and I still would hesitate to say we're not seeing this Japandi style take over our homes yet. It's still very prominent in the commercial – it's forefront commercially. You can find restaurants and cafes and Mm. retail that are really kind of coming forward. Retail in particular. If you think of 
We actually, Ash and I, went to Chudston not long ago, which I have not been into a shopping centre in so long, and I was very surprised by how many stores Mm. had this. I would say that fast forward five years and residentially it will be everywhere. It will. I know I've got two big properties that I'm Mm. working on at the moment that are really trying to encapsulate that. And when you ask a client, well, what is it about this that you're trying to encapsulate? Nine times out of 10, they will say, I look at it and I feel calm or I look at Mm. it and it takes away the chaos. And I think that is what we're striving for in this current moment. And so give it three, four years and it will be what we're living in. It takes time to catch up in this particular style being known as Japandi in my opinion is only getting clarity in the Mm. last well this year particularly there's just more information about it there's more Mm. clarity around it that people can actually grasp what Japandi is Mm. because prior to that could be quite confusing like Mm. Japanese style and Scandinavian style they're 8,000 kilometers away Mm. from each other How, how are they mixing how are they the same thing but by the sheer amount of information that's now available, it is making more sense. So you think that residential, that will tie over. Yeah. And when you say that, it does make me feel very warm when you say they're 8,000 kilometres apart and yet they're still managing to blend together. I do think it gives that one world feeling that we can all have very different experiences and live in different cultures and be different people. Speak completely different languages. They don't even speak the same language. And still come together. And there's something really comforting about that when we are in a world that is very against one another Mm, at times. and yeah. Yeah, quite divided. So it's beautiful that in interiors we can harmoniously blend two cultures together in a way that just works so well and reminds us that we are all human and there's no reason why we can't all work together and be one. So nice, Ash. Well, that really covers off the future too. I think we really went from present into future. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you wanted to add to the future of Japandi and where you think this may be going? If anything, understanding the mental benefits of your surrounds will really encourage you in the design of your home or the design of your retail store. Or if you're not necessarily gravitating towards Japandi as a style, at least gravitate towards their theory, Mm. which is creating a space that gives you mental clarity. I think figure out what that is for you. Embrace that part of Japandi. Yeah. That's where we're going in the future. It is. Japandi may not be the future of design, but the mind, the Japandi mindset is definitely the future of how we design. So understanding what's going to give you mental clarity and instilling that into how you approach your home or approach the spaces that you're in is a really great way to at least utilize the essence of what Japandi is. So well said. Thank you. Well done. I don't think I could possibly add anything more to that. Beautiful. It's been a great episode. It's been great. (laughs) Episode one. It has. We're really thrilled to be back into it and to be doing a slightly different structure this Mm. season for Interior Couture. So thank you all so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Interior Couture. If you enjoyed this episode and want to know more, come connect with us on Instagram at interiorcouture.podcast. 
We're an independent podcast and we really appreciate your time and support. A follow on the platform that you're listening to this episode on would be amazing. If you're feeling extra generous, leave us a review on Apple Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts and takeaways. 